Welcome to CSG Politics. Before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of a dairy block. Um, restrictions are being loosened. Uh, Colorado has a new dial, which I think we may talk about uh, a little bit later. Um, and so people are able to go down. The weather is absolutely beautiful right now, but it will change later this week. But for the time being, you can go down there and maybe do some outdoor dining. Um, uh, important for me, they're now doing drag bingo on Saturdays, or I think Fridays or Saturdays. They're in the, in the uh, dairy block, so that's pretty fun. Um, but uh, Blanchard is a big participant in that. But, you know, look, if you're, if you're just looking for some wine, get that 2017 Cabernet. It's really good. And what I've got to do is get my friend uh, Patrick here a bottle of Blanchard Family Wines so he can uh, finally experience what I have been talking about lo these many months <laughs> that we have been yes, doing this. Please. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, they also got uh, uh, some Pinot because obviously these are grapes from Sonoma County, but this really is a local business and local businesses need your support. Uh, go to bfwdenver.com and uh, just look at all the varieties they've got. They've got partnerships with Western Slope uh, uh, wineries like Restoration and Storm Cellars. There's even a... Uh, uh, partnership they have with a, uh, a a winery in the Elk Mountains, uh, which is near Aspen. So obviously, if you want some of that Colorado flavor, get that there right now. Uh, go to bfwdenver.com and also book your uh, virtual wine tastings, which are very, very popular. They ship you what you need, and then you just do it virtually. And uh, people really love, really, really dig those things. Uh, aside from that, just go to bfwdenver.com and just look at what they got. Or you could go in if you want to do curbside order your uh, delivery shipment or pickup. If you want to go down pickup curbside, it's uh, between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, you go to Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. And when you go in or you talk to them, tell them Jeff Morton from CSU Podcast sent you there. What is up, everybody? Welcome to CSG Politics. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, with me, as always, is my co-host, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the uh, only person I know named Pat, Mr. Pat Guerin. Hello. Good day, sir. It truly is finally magnificent when we're talking. So, it is. It is, the, uh, it, is, uh, it is a gorgeous day. I don't know if you've seen outside. It is absolutely fantastic out there. It is. The sun is shining a little brighter these days, uh, Morty, since we last talked. It is. It is. There's, a, there's many a thing to go through but to talk about, but I think we need to start, start with a non-politics thing. But it's something that obviously sticks, grinds our gears, so to speak, or sticks in our craw, is um, the state of our um, not-so-beloved Rockies and their recent agreement to trade uh, Nolan Arenado to... Uh, the, I was going to, yeah, it was St. Louis Cardinals. And for some reason I was thinking of the old football team. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with my brain here. Anyway, um, to the Cardinals for what appears to be a pile of hair and uh, some middling prospects. And plus they're going to send out 15, the Rockies are going to send out $50 million for the pleasure. Um, just uh, what are your thoughts about the state of uh, this 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 miserable miserable team that we both uh, know and love? Well, I'm glad that since we're on the CSG uh, podcast network, we can delve a little bit into this because I need I need some talk therapy here, Morty. Um, I'm often accused by many of my friends of being far too loyal to my teams and like making excuses for them and. Um, you know, be, believing sort of the PR that they throw at your way, you know, whether that be that uh, Paxton Lynch is going to be uh, the next great starter for the, the Denver Broncos or, uh, 
or, you know, oh, the Rockies just need their young pitchers to step up and we're going to have a chance to compete with the Dodgers. Uh, those things, like, you know, you can, you can make the case with your blinders on. Um, but uh, this trade is highlighted in this, in this, I showed you before the, we started here today, the, the front page of the Denver Post, you know, the very top center, the dumbest trade ever in Colorado sports. Um, <laughs> this is, you know, if you're not a huge baseball fan or if you don't follow the Rockies, um, Nolan Arenado is uh, the greatest player that has ever played for the Colorado Rockies. Right. And we've had some great players, um, you know, right. um, and he is, you know, depending on which list you look at, he's the best third baseman in baseball. Uh, he was the reason to go to the ballpark in the years when the team was not as competitive as you would have liked, which is every year. Right. So, um, you know, that hot corner there on, on third base was manned by Nolan Arenado. The greatest moment, so it's hard to say. The Rockies have had some good moments in their 27 years or however long they've been around. Um, but one of the greatest ever was the Father's Day uh, game that Nolan Arenado uh, hit the walk-off homer to complete the cycle. Um, you know, his face was bloodied as he came across to home plate. He played the game with such passion. He didn't, he's not on Twitter and in social media. He, he's a baseball guy and he's a guy that you build your franchise around. And there's a reason why baseball cities, baseball teams with proven track records of success were right. eager to get him. And so once again, a future Hall of Famer from the Colorado Rockies gets traded away to the St. Louis Cardinals. And in this case, nothing has gotten back in return. No top prospects. No reason to think that the team's going to be any better. And as you said, the bitter pill at the end of it there is, why don't we pay $50 million for the pleasure of ruining our our franchise really so right. outraged i i think i think you know this is a politics show so we won't linger on this too too long but it, it is a it is i i can't really describe how it is to be a fan of a team that constantly reaches for the lowest end that they could possibly reach deliberately you know a lot of the i mean i've been a fan of the nuggets for as you know most of my life uh i'll be honest with you i this team has been the nuggets have been frustrating and and have done things that have made little to no sense but uh they have always seemed to be like look we're just trying to win in a league that favors big markets and stars but we're trying I have never been a fan of an organization and never seen an organization like the Rockies actively try not to win at times, try to avoid yes. financial obligations like the Rockies. And this has really been going on since the uh, Dick and Charlie Monfort uh, took over primary ownership in about 2001, 2002. And this has just been getting, it's, you're getting what you're getting right now. And I don't know how, I'll be honest with you, since this trade, it looks to me like it was purely financial. I don't know how you're going to avoid it. I just, it, this is going to be go through this cycle where they get a nice team or a nice little young and up and coming team, which let's face it, that's what they do. This is the, this, this last stretch from 2010 or 11, when they started going downhill again to now is let's build up the farm again. They got good enough in 2017 when Bud Black came on and then Arenado was hitting his peak and all this stuff. And then they did absolutely jack shit to maximize their window. And then now you're seeing that again, it's this boom bust cycle. That's not a boom. It's like a good bust, a good and then bust cycle is what it seems to be. Well, I mean, you know, to put a pin on this heartbreak here, the team has always had a talking point, which is that, you know, like you said, the Nuggets are in a world where they have to compete in a world where their market is totally different than the market of the teams that win. The Rockies always have to account for altitude and the vast expanse of Coors Field, takes right. its toll on players, you know, it's hard on pitchers, it's hard on position players, it's hard on hitters, even when they go on the road, takes them a game or two to adjust, blah, blah, blah. But the Rockies were always like, hey, we're going to develop our young talent. And that's great. That's a great philosophy if you're going to keep that young talent, you know. But if you're going to be honest, then you need to be honest like uh, the Houston Astros were before they were not honest about all the cheating. Um, 
which is that we're going to be absolutely terrible. We're going to fire sale this team. We're going to take it down to the studs. We're going to rebuild it. And then, you know, we're going to have success. Now, again, granted, tainted due to the cheating. But the Rockies don't even have the competence to try to do any of that. You know, they're like, they're literally going to hang on to these all-stars until, I mean, Nolan Arenado was re-signed to a blockbuster mega contract, which was like, wow, we're finally going to keep one of these homegrown talent guys. And then the team itself insisted to put an opt-out clause in there so the player could leave after three years, after taking a look around and seeing that they weren't doing anything serious to be a contender. And then they do have other good players on their team, but why would they want to stay? Why is Trevor Story going to re-sign with them? Why would Charlie Blackman want to waste any more time? in the outfield of Coors Field. And yeah. so then what's left, you know, I mean, I love Coors Field. It's a beautiful ballpark. It's nothing like going to it on a summer day, but the Colorado Rockies don't deserve, you know, my money or my thoughts or my time. I mean, it's just, they don't care. And it's, it's one of those, it's, it's, this is where, where we can dovetail into the politics, Morty. The cynicism is so strong with the people that run that team that they think they can just do whatever they want and they're still going to put 30,000 people there on a weeknight and they're still going to w- watch it sell out every time the, the Cubs or the Cardinals or the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers come to town. And that's that. And the fact that a, a city that like burns the Denver Broncos down every time they, they uh, you know, go on a, a stretch of bad games or bad seasons just kind of like is like, oh, that's how it is. And then still fully supports the team means that it will never change. And so all hope is lost. Well, my <laughs> suggestion for you and everyone else is that we pick like a surrogate team that we're going to love, you know, now and into the future. And we always will leave the door open to reunite with the Rockies if something happens, which we can't expect. But, you know, baseball is a beautiful sport, a beautiful game. It intermixes with politics going back throughout, you know, much of the 20th century, 21st century history. Um, right. But uh, they don't deserve anything from their fans because that's what they get from their team. Well, uh, that's kind of dovetails into a, a kind of a, this will, this will kind of segue us into something that uh, we need to talk about because obviously Joe Biden was uh, inaugurated since we did our last pod- podcast, nothing happened, all that stuff. But to put a bow on the, uh, the, the talk about the Monforts, it's been said um, to, by people who are around the Rockies that they're using the pandemic as a uh, basically an excuse to cut basically all salary. Um, and I think if Dick Monfort had his way, they wouldn't play. I'll be honest with you. I think, I think that, and I, and you can, you hear rumors that that was the angle the Rockies were going to take that they just would prefer not to play uh, until they get fans in because the Rockies quote unquote depend on, on fan revenue because they sign bad TV deals because Dick Monfort just can't get out of his own way. Um, so this pandemic has obviously affected things as far as like, you, the way you think there. And I think uh, uh, that's not an excuse necessarily because other teams, i.e., as you pointed out, the San Diego Padres, which are obviously in a market that doesn't really support its teams, managed to go out during a pandemic year and sign a whole bunch of uh, good players to compete with the Dodgers in the NL West. That's always been an excuse for the Colorado Rockies. And I think that you're seeing that bear fruit right now. Um, anyone, any last thoughts on the, on the, uh, the depressing subject of the Rockies before we move on? You know, uh, I'm going to cleanse myself with the talk of that we have a new president and mm. that's something to look forward to. But I will say that, you know, it really does put the damper on the usual um, boost that I get this time of year that baseball is right around the corner. Right. And it's already hard because we don't know um, who is going to be um, playing, um, you know, anyhow, sorry, I went, I went, off, went off the rails there morning, lost my train of thought. But the point is, uh, we're going to have to look to other ways in which to find uh, hope. And uh, now I'm going to set up a segue for you and be like, we do have a new president. Right. We've done this show, you know, five or six episodes, I think. Yeah. Every one of them involved uh, impending doom. <laughs> and uh, on January 20th, I took a lot of comfort in seeing the sort of comfort food of American political pageantry right. on display in a 2021 
uh, lens was placed over it, a filter, uh, if you will, um, right, right. where there was uh, not the the long crowds. We did it was we did not get an opportunity to see the largest inauguration crowd in history. Period. Um, this time around, but uh, it, I thought that much like the convention, um, which they had to re rethink, um, the inauguration was uh, was a splendid di uh, display of American democracy right. of um, sort of American citizenry um, represented by having, you know, the former vice, then the now former Vice President Mike Pence and um, Mitch McConnell and, you know, uh, many others uh, there along with uh, sort of the honorary club of former presidents, the, the Bushes and the Clintons and the Obamas. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I got to say it was striking to see Kamala Harris be sworn in. Um, it was almost like, a, you know, an updated version of the, the classic uh, political show um having a woman um be the vice president of the united states and mm -hmm. joe biden delivered what brett bear i believe on fox news called you know one of the best political speeches uh he really um he hit the high notes he hit the pageantry that uh that sort of oratory um that we've come to expect from some of the great speeches from our leaders as they're inaugurated uh, but he also laid out the tough work and he didn't shy away from talking about how we need to put truth back at the center of of our society of right. our culture uh, that we need to call out the lies um you know and i and i think that that call of unity is always part of the inauguration but he kind of set some parameters for what that unity should look like. And, um, and it isn't just, you know, caving to the other side. So we all feel like we're getting along, which has been sometimes the inclination of the Democrats when they get power. Uh, so anyway, uh, a great day, a uh, great ceremony. Um, and most importantly, it went off without incident. As I know, we were all had concerns and certainly are grateful to the national guard and all those that are, you know, if they're sleeping in the in the Capitol or in the parking garage next door or whatever, uh, to make that transition happen, um, and it did feel and still does feel uh, different. It feels like it's a different um, country that we're living in, even though you know only sort of like physical, you know, or like um, visual changes really have occurred so far. There's certainly been some right. um, lawmaking and, and such that has been affected, but uh, uh, I am optimistic going forward. And, and so I think that uh, these next, whatever it is now, eight, 90 days uh, will be uh, a real good test of, of the will to use the levers of power that the Democratic Party has in order to advance their agenda. You know, it's it, it, Joe Biden started off, and I think he signed like how many executive orders has he signed since he came into office? So like over thirty, right? And he, yeah, he has just like hit the ground running, and of course he put this one point nine trillion dollar um, budget, or not budget? It's a uh, uh, COVID relief package. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, obviously is going to need to be worked on. We can talk about that in a second. Um, but I think the, the general tone is one of normalcy. And I said it before, prior to the you know, inauguration, um, you're just looking forward to normal. And I, and I think, well, a lot of people, particularly if people who are terminally online, they tend to look at things like when you're looking at news drips from Twitter all the time, and then you got people who aren't qualified to talk about shit doing threads that get a million likes and stuff like that, uh, you, you tend to think, oh my God, the sky's falling all the time. But what I saw in this election, and I may have mentioned this in a prior podcast, was I, I was just looking forward to just kind of just the normal actions of a president and hopefully to a, get to a point where you don't think about him all the time. You know, uh, uh, Joe Biden um, gave a, one of those uh, press, what they call them press sprays, right before he got onto the, uh, the, the old helicopter. helicopter, And uh, he was wearing a nice jacket. <laughs> and I was like, I really like that jacket, right? And, he, and it was just an innocuous thought that had nothing to do with what he was talking about, which was basically he was saying, you know, get this, get this thing passed or we're gonna do it in bu budget reconciliation is what he was saying. But all I could think about was like, oh, that's a nice jacket. But it was nice to do that because I kind of did that with Obama. 
the inability for us to be allowed to get on with our lives because you're constantly thinking about thinking about a, a president who needs attention 24 7 is um you realize you forget how taxing it is mentally i mean how, how many people have just I mean, forget the pandemic how many people have just aged like <laughs> twice like like they've aged eight years instead of four years in the last four because you know you're constantly stressed out about the what the lunatic president's going to do I mean, this sounds like a full-throated endorsement of my Make Politics Boring Again uh, mm -hmm. philosophy morning mm -hmm. that I have been calling for on every pod. And uh, we're there now because unless you want to get into um, the reconciliation process or um, what it takes to, um, to, you know, what the difference between $600 billion and $1.2 trillion is when it comes to fiscal policy, then you're tuning out because, right. uh, you know, the president hasn't called anyone um, a dog or um you know made their first day in office a point to uh, single out marginalized groups and right. uh write write legislation about it a couple things there just uh you know in response to what you said um you know ex the executive order thing is getting out of hand um when your guy goes in he just signs a bunch of executive orders and that changes all these rules and then when your guy leaves and the next guy just like signs one that reverses all those you know in the past it had always been like oh federal funding for abortions is like you know depending on who's in office they'll sign an executive order now it's like full-on like how we deal with immigration and what kind of like civil rights protections there are for people that are in the u.s military and things like right. this you know we we need to take that and also the other bucket the norms that we always have heard so much about that prove not to be norms at all and codify them as laws and the way in which you do that is you get it into the congress and you get it passed and you use your political capital because you're you have the majorities you know and uh, the filibuster conversation we can have some other time but um it's definitely the time where I think you could find uh, enough people in the Senate to make simple rules that would prevent bad actors from acting badly in the future when it comes to either election law or the way in which executive orders are implemented or whatever it happens to be. You know, there was one stark reminder for me about how things were going back to back to business as they hadn't in so long. And that was on the same day of the, of the inauguration, uh, the White House press briefing room, the Brady briefing room in the White House uh, had a press conference with the secretary, press secretary delivering remarks off the top and then taking questions. And I believe in this case, she was taking like two or three questions per questioner mm -hmm. and going around the room and saying, hey, we'll see you back here tomorrow. I mean, you may remember the time not that long ago when Stephanie Grissom was the, um, was the press secretary for Donald Trump for well over a year, held zero briefings. Right. And that is how, this is all part of my Make Politics Boring Again, you flood the zone with policy, with all of these things where, you know, they've been trying to get Secretary, um, Press Secretary Jen Psaki to comment on some of the extreme things that are being said by some of the members of the Republican congressional delegation. Um, and they definitely deserve rebuke and, uh, and much stronger <laughs> consequence. Right. But she said, we won't be talking about that in this room. You know, we won't be talking about that. We will be talking about this COVID relief bill. We will be talking about, you know, governmental reforms. We will be talking about ways in which to get things done. And it's fascinating because they're going back. It's like going back to the script or going back to the trial transcript and saying, hey, we're going to talk about this. We're going to go with what is on the record, what we want to discuss. Right. And the response from the, those that are asked in the minority now is, oh, they're going to do those things. Well, it doesn't sound like they're that into unity, you know. Right. And they've literally betrayed their hand that they're just moving the goalposts again. They've never been involved in unity. Yeah. They could have been in unity with the majority of the voters in this country by ever standing up to Donald Trump for doing anything. And they right. never did. But now because, you know, Joe Biden goes back there and basically resets to the status quo, all these things that uh, Trump signed to just to basically try to erase Barack Obama. Um, now they're all like, 
crying out and in saying that, you know, um, I think it was Ron Johnson who was this morning and they talked about going through reconciliation. He's like, well, this is a different scenario than when Republicans did it in the past. And it's like the unspoken difference is that Republicans were the ones that did it in the past. And so then it was okay. But now, you know, we have to give greater weight to this minority of Americans that have voted for Donald Trump in two consecutive elections and that we need to be like concerned about their feelings, mm -hmm. which is ironic coming from the party that literally wears shirts and waves flags to say, fuck your feelings. Well, I, here's a, here's a good uh, couple, couple thoughts on, you know, Jen Psaki, who is the, uh, is the press secretary. Now I love the way she handles the press. She doesn't do it in a, um, like Sarah Huckabee Sanders was like, I, I, that was horrific. The way, the way she would do these, these, these pressers, these uh, press briefings, they, they were just terrible. Candidate and she, for governor of Arizona. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm sorry, Arkansas, Arkansas. Arkansas yeah. Not, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, what she's uh, not one of uh, Mike Huckabee's large adult sons, but she might as well be. Um, uh, she, <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, when, Jen, Jen uh, Saki was running these press conferences. I'm like, I had two thoughts. Like one was like, oh my God, this is how we run a press briefing. And two, the P in her name is unnecessary. <laughs> she doesn't need a P before the Saki. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> but you usually, know, we, the sake, usually the P comes after the Saki. Exactly, exactly. Anyone who's been to get sushi and had sake bombs you know exactly what i'm talking about um oh my god but there there is just a nor sense of normalcy and you, you look you and i've been talking about normalcy for a while now i obviously this is going back to early november right we, our first csg politics was right before the election and uh, it seems like eight yeah. years ago now and it we've been talking about just make it normal make it normal make it normal um, because I think that's what people voted for. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I, I think it was Joe Biden represented Wait. normal because everyone knows Joe Biden. Uh, and I think that that part just has come across. You're getting the normal Look now. At, I mean, yes, the grownups are back in charge. I mean, look at the um, cabinet positions right. and compare that to the cabinet unveiling of the cabinet four years ago. I mean, Tony Blinken in the state department is such an accomplished and sincere and competent and qualified diplomat that we couldn't be in better hands. Right. He tells a story about his stepfather who he had, he revered. And his stepfather's family escaped from um, the Nazi Germany death camps and such. And it, and it shaped his stepfather's life and has then clearly shaped Tony Blinken's life and the way that he approaches diplomacy and America's role within it. Right. Fifteen days ago, we had a gas bag secretary of state that had nothing to do but tout, you know, faux accomplishments, never answer questions. He had a reporter that works for the Voice of America fired for asking him questions about things that he was doing. I mean, it was basically just another grift for another egomaniac to set up their future political action committees and chances to run for office. Right. And it's a freaking disgrace. And now the adults are back in charge, you know? And when you look at who we, who's, you know, whether it be um, at Treasury, in the Commerce Department, the Department of the Interior. I don't believe she's been um, confirmed yet, but I mean, you're going to have a Native American right. representing the Department of Government <laughs> that has jurisdiction over Native American lands. That is right. something that has that has been 300 years in the making, right. you know, and it's happening now because, again, um, you know, Joe Biden has run for president numerous times and lost. He has suffered uh, all kinds of personal loss, as is well documented. He has, in some ways, had become a little bit of a caricature of himself. But do not mistake that the some of the governing backbone that Barack Obama leaned upon what came directly from Joe Biden. And he is an accomplished governmental um, influencer and we're lucky to have them. And right. 
there, there's plenty of people that were on that stage, you know, 18 months ago when they first started the nomination process. And maybe many of us could find people that we would have preferred to be in that position. But I don't think a single one of them would have gotten elected. And so right. the perfect storm came together and now we have hope again. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I mean, I think once the, and we can talk about this a little, um, the COVID relief thing is uh, obviously huge and needs to pass. Um, what you're seeing is something that was completely predictable. Um, Republicans will just do what they did under Obama. Just, just go in lockstep and say no, and then accuse you of not, not unifying. Um, Obviously, the main difference is I think there's a greater number of moderate Republicans who are willing to work. And I know that people don't want to hear this. But you got two moderate Democrats in uh, Joe Manchin and uh, Kristen Sinema. And you have about 10, I wouldn't say moderate, you actually have about five moderate Republicans and five who are re retiring or going to be in their last term who have, don't have the incentive to be lockstep with uh, the, the base. Um, and obviously there is that area that wields a ton of power now, because if you want to get anything passed, you're going to have to hit right there because the 50-50 Senate, unless you want to go right down the middle. And I, I, I don't blame Joe Manchin for doing what he does. He's elected in the state of West Virginia. Um, you're going to have to be a certain way <clears throat> to get elected in West Virginia. It's the most conservative state in the union. So I, I get it. I, I, I get it completely. I don't like it, but I get it. Um, so there's going to be this. Now, if, if it becomes evident that Republicans are acting in bad faith, which let's face it, I kind of default to that notion anyway, um, then obviously you go to budget reconciliation, but the, I guess there is a window here, but uh, how do you perceive that the 10 GOPers who sent that letter to uh, Joe Biden, were they acting in good faith or bad faith? Mm, all of them are in different levels of the scale there. First of all, on Joe Manchin, I mean, this guy actually would have an opportunity to support something big and bold that the conservatives might be against that then he could show to his constituency how it benefited them. Right. These most conservative states that always get thrown around, West Virginia, Mississippi, Alabama, all these states, there's a reason why they're in the 47th, 48th, 49th place in all metrics of evaluation. Right. And it's because their local and state government is 100% immersed with this kind of with this kind of thing. These are also the, the states that are getting back way more in federal funds than they're sending in, right? And so if you're in West Virginia and a massive COVID relief bill gets passed here in the next 10, you know, 190 days, whatever it is, and now you get $2,000 checks per person or something like that and you have $4,000 for your small family out of nowhere in order to like help yourself restart into the emergence of this pandemic, which has also been um, addressed in a much more serious and honest uh, way under a new administration, then are these people that convinced that they need to vote against their best interests that they can't look at their own benefit from having Joe Manchin do something for them. And then that doesn't buoy him into the future. And honestly, I mean, if the Democrats need to, shore up a Senate seat in another state in 2022 and let Joe Manchin go away if that's how it happens to be. Mm. Because the fact that he's going to sit back there and be the one guy who, and I don't know what Kristen Simona is doing and with her sort of newfound yeah. moderation. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, they just elected Mark Kelly who, you know, won convincingly. So, Anyhow, um, that process is going to be interesting to play out. Now, to answer your question, um, anytime the minority party sends a letter to the White House, it's very rarely in good faith. Right. Um, it's always to protect the political flank or to try to provide cover for more vulnerable members. You know, they say, hey, this, it didn't have bipartisan support. We tried, you know, and so now if you're a senator from you know, Maine, unfortunately, won't be up again for six years. But uh, wherever where you know, you're in a situation where you don't know how 
that's going to play for you in a 2022 race, then, you know, you're looking for excuses as to why you weren't able to deliver these things that people would clearly benefit from. Right. Mm -hmm. And while still holding on to your conservative base that doesn't want us to, to waste money. But the truth is, is like, this is the bottom line. First of all, where were these senators when they had the majority? Why Mm -hmm. weren't they, you know, carving out these sorts of plans and getting them approved. I mean, they found themselves, you know, to the right of Donald Trump, who was asking for even more payments, which seems completely insane. Trump gave them the cover before he left to support a $2,000 payment, right? And also, I'm not an economist, but I live in a society that's run by the economy. And I can see that it's hurting. It's hurting a lot of people and it's hurting them very badly. I also know that money is very cheap. Interest rates are at historic lows. Borrowing money is basically, there's never been a better time to do it. It's almost economic malpractice not to borrow money at times like this because you're not going to have these opportunities again. So while we sat around and waited for four years for infrastructure week to finally take off, it's time to start investing in the backbone of the country. And the first step of doing that is getting a bill passed that gets money out to states, that gets money out to small businesses, that gets money out into people's pockets. Right. So that as we emerge and coupled with that, heavily invest in the infrastructure that's going to take in order to get this vaccine in the arms of as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, then, you know, we are, primed up for a roaring 20s redux here where there is pent-up demand in the economy there's pent-up demand because everybody's just on the sideline here it's not like a normal recession where the 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 fundamentals of the economy have repressed everything which then usually causes higher interest rates and other sorts of undesirable financial policy decisions that have to be made but because this is like you know a once in a hundred year event where the economy is being suppressed by one known thing it's that it sits back there ready to pounce you know it's mm-hmm. like uh it's like ralphie getting ready to run out up there at folsom field morty before uh you know, the cu games ralphie. um yeah. you know it could go, it, it, let's go crazy mm-hmm. and the way to do it is whatever it takes i don't love the fact that there's like this reconciliation way of doing business which occasionally lets you have a simple majority but then other times you let the minority just like read the phone book and nothing gets done because they don't want it to that's insane but use the levers of the system that are there for good it's like bizarro Donald Trump, which he used the levers as a system that was there to subvert it and to make things more difficult and to make things harder on most people unless they showed proper fealty towards him. But now it's like, you know, I think that they decided that they have two shots at reconciliation this year. Use them both. And there's nothing that says anything needs to be bipartisan because, you know, the country is, you know, fairly evenly split, but these things would be going to both sides. It will be going to the red states. It'll be going to the yeah. blue states. It'll be going to the Trump voters. It'll be going to the Biden voters. And that is the first step. And then once it's out there, you know, you manage the distribution, you manage the way in which you follow up with it. And you also have the opportunity to move forward. You know, so there you go. I mean, well, yeah. I think that I know we're going to talk about the vaccine in a little bit, but like, you know, that is the magic pill that needs to be put into every one of these legislative agendas so that we can just push it over the finish line here. Well, and I, I, I agree in that sense. And I, and I think that there's a, uh, you, you, you would think that Republicans would want this, but they, they, it seems to be that they are following the same playbook that they, they played under Obama. Um, it's what got them control in 2010 slash 14. That's all um, they know how to do. And that's all they know how to do. And they don't have a defensible political position. That's the and, problem. And let me make a let me make a uh, um, a case for budget recon- reconciliation. If the Democrats can demonstrate that they can do this, um, which obviously depends a lot on Mansion and Cinema, because that's the only way they're going to be able to do that process. Um, if they if they show that they're able to help people, it'll just benefit them, it, it, regardless of quote unquote faux cries of unity, which Republicans don't give a shit about anyway. Um, it, I think it'll, if you have something that will you indeed benefit people, um, it will happen. I mean, and look at one of the aspects of this uh, relief package that uh, uh, Biden put out there. It was like billions in COVID-related uh, vaccine distribution, which uh, is badly needed. It is extremely badly needed right now. And some sort of infrastructure to to get this out because 
let's face it, by about April, May, we're going to have uh, the, the biggest segment of this country wanting to get that. So we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but that's yeah, part and, of it. To your point, Morty, I mean, there was a story out to this morning that, you know, was uh, giving some deep background on how Trump officials were like actively lobbying Congress not to give money to the states, um, you know, and that they said that they needed, you know, eight and a half billion dollars or something. And so they were happy to give, you know, a billion dollars to Moderna and uh, some and support some of the scientific research that was being done. But then the second step of that was just like willfully obstructed. And so there has to be a, a, an apparatus now that undoes that. And uh, the real test, I think, of leadership um going into the first phase of this new administration is not going to be joe biden i think he's passed that test right. you know over the years it's not just this week it's going to come from chuck schumer and chuck schumer you know who is the you know the, the the majority leader can he rally his people the same way that mitch mcconnell was able to do? mitch mcconnell kept everyone together save one on impeachment right. you know on something that people easily could have had taken the opportunity to break with Trump on, especially those weren't, that weren't up for re-election for a while, you know, is Chuck Schumer going to be able to wrangle that Democratic caucus? It's harder because it's a more diverse sort of uh, group of people. And they, and the, so a lot of the majority is more tenuous because of the inherent sort of uh, advantage that Republicans have with the, the Senate map. But, you know, Chuck Schumer, it's time to, you know, make it happen. Right. Like Nancy I, I Pelosi agree. does in the House. I agree, I agree completely. Okay, well, that's a nice segue into uh, our main topic, which is the vaccine distribution and uh, focusing on Colorado. But you know, we're going to touch on everything, um, so we will be talking about that after the break. Welcome back to the CSU Politics. Okay. Now, we have a, uh, a main subject that we all, you know, that Pat and I kind of agree upon before we start our podcast. And um, this one we want to kind of want to talk about vaccine, vaccine distribution, what's been going on with vaccines and all this stuff. Let me start by an anecdote, using an anecdote. Um, about four days ago, I went into a Walgreens. Uh, as many of you know who follow CSG, just in general, I have been isolated since uh, February 1999. Yes. Well, some would say, based on the various music and movie shows that they listen to, and in the regular CSG, yes, that would be very true. Um, but I've been isolated since last uh, February because I got a brother who has leukemia. I've got a dad who has COPD and, you know, obviously if he gets COVID, it's not going to be great for him. Uh, and I mean, honestly, I don't want to risk it. And so I have been basically in isolation since mid February of last year. So I'm coming up on a year. Uh, I went into a Walgreens to get a book of stamps and I was in there for a grand total of 45 seconds, right? I went in said, I want a book of stamps, got the book of stamps, left. There was like a grand total of two people in the entire place. I was paranoid and scared out of my mind to go in there. And I do not like living this way. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a guy who's prone to anxiety. I'm not. I'm, I'm, uh, old Pat here can tell you I'm a pretty much even person. I, I don't, I don't get too high. I don't get too low. My life is pretty I think much. I have ever seen you cry, Morty. <laughs> Uh, well, I may I may cry on this podcast. It'll be disturbing for everyone. Um, <laughs> there is, I I I felt a sense of just absolute panic and dread going in there. And even though intellectually I knew the chances of transmission, considering everyone in the place was masked, and uh, it was right the place where I walked to was like five steps away from the door. There was a breeze going through the place. Every kind of mitigation was was in the place every everyone and i had two masks on i had i was double masked and uh i still felt like oh god i'm gonna die 
and it was I, I, startling. I, I, I hated feeling like that. And it, it really made me think. And it got me kind of depressed afterwards because I'm like, I, I don't, I'm not a guy who's prone to panic like this. And I was completely panicked. And I don't want to have to uh, be someone who is agoraphobic because of this pandemic. It's obviously done this because of mitigation factors. And, you know, and uh, as many of you will know, who've been listening to CHG politics for, you know, the entire duration is that Pat here himself had COVID. And so obviously there is, there are that those factors going on here. And I'm, I said that anecdote to talk about vaccination distribution, which has been a clusterfuck for lack of better term. And um, a lot of it had to do with Trump administration having no real plan to get distribution out there. They just, as Pat pointed out in the last segment, just basically said like, well, we'll get you these vaccines and like you, just, you do it to the states. And they're like, you, you, you handle it basically is how it went. And federalism. <laughs> yeah. And it uh, backfired because the vaccine distribution has been nonsensical and dumb. New York has an extremely strict um, guidelines for COVID vaccine distribution. They're not exactly doing as well as other states are in just getting that out there. There and and there are there's a lot of I mean even Colorado's actually in the grand scheme of things has done a pretty good job. But even then, I'm trying to get my seventy something year old father vaccinated, and it's been three weeks of absolute running into a brick wall. I, I just I, I I've signed him up to lists. I have got him on to uh, all everything that I need to get him onto, and I still can't get him vaccinated. And it has been like a luck of the draw kind of thing. And it, uh, let's kind of talk about Colorado first, Pat. Have you, do you have a personal experience of like with your parents or anyone like that trying to get someone vaccinated or on lists or something like that? And can you comment at least in general about your own experience uh, with trying to get this whole thing done? Sure. So I actually do know a handful of people that have gotten uh, vaccines, uh, mm -hmm. both in Colorado and outside of Colorado. Mostly there are people that I'm acquainted with that are like nurses or people of that, that um, qual uh, quantification or whatever mm -hmm. classification we'll say. Right. Um, now, my parents actually, and um, they live in a smaller outlying town. Um, and they actually have both received their first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. And that's through... Uh, my mother uh, worked, you know, with a, an organization, a nonprofit organization that has a lot of interaction with the public. And so they were offered some essential worker, essentially vaccines to start with. And so, um, you know, she was able to get a vaccine as was my father. And I'll tell you this, Morty, uh, when they sent a text to the family to tell us about that, um, you know, it was followed up with like, yes, we hope to be able to come and see everybody in, in February, you know, and I have seen them once or twice. Um, but I used to see them pretty regularly. And, you know, we have new babies in our family. We have, you know, toddlers and preschoolers growing up and we have high schoolers and all this. And my parents have just basically been absent from that for all this time. And so it provided just such a, such a, it was like I was getting an inoculation of normalcy right. of a return to like, Oh, I'm going to be able to like hug my mom without, you know, fearing I might kill her type of thing. And I think that that feeling is something that, you know, we need to be pushing hard that everyone uh, should be able to get. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that I had COVID last year and I, I think I actually, you know, was diagnosed on election day. Uh, no, no irony. Um, but uh, it was harrowing and I had a mild case, but I was pretty sick and it was scary and it scared my family. And, um, you know, it was wildly disruptive to my life. And, if you know i don't i wouldn't want anyone else to have to do that i mean there's not a lot of parallels to this in the in, in our past like we've all gotten sick we've gotten the flu we all have sympathy for other people you know to get better and feel better or whatever but you know this is just this is like a, a disease of of like the air that we breathe and if we can filter that air so that we can all breathe it more effectively then why the fuck aren't we doing that and when you look at colorado and, and you know i have um, a hometown bias for Colorado. I give it a lot of credit for things that maybe just are happenstance or whatever. And I'm reluctant to 
criticize it, much like I described how I am with my sports teams, you know? Right. So right. some people consider this a virtue that I have. But anyway, I am disappointed that we haven't spent the last year calling the manager at every Walgreens in the state and saying, hey, if we were to drop off a hundred doses a day to you for six weeks, would you be able to administer it? And if they're like, oh, I don't know, we'd have to hire new employees. Then the state could be like, oh, well, we have this small amount of money. It's not what we wanted, but it's a little, uh, little cash walking around money we got. We can throw at you. Hire mm-hmm. 10 people to start, you know, we'll give you a 10 day notice of when we're going to start getting these vaccines and then hit the ground freaking running. You know, I think uh, Coors Field is having a mass vaccination event. They did like the trial run last week and this weekend, I guess it's supposed to be bigger. I haven't really heard anything about it, but why the hell weren't we doing, why weren't we doing trial runs of that six months ago? So that when the vaccine comes out, boom, it's ready to go. I mean, this morning there was guidance from one of these doctors on one of the Sunday shows that basically said, we need to focus on getting everyone their first shot right now because these these variants are coming and the first shot gives you enough protection that should allow you to, should allow the the aggregate of affected cases to be tamped down over the next six to eight weeks. And then we'll get to the second shot when we can, you know, and like anything, you know, like toilet paper, we were freaking flat out of it for two months and now there's toilet paper everywhere, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you build back up the capacity and you continue to push it out there. And so, you know, these are the things that need to be determined. That's federal government responsibility. Like, are we going to just say, you know, issue the guidance from the medical experts? Let's get as many people with these shots in the arms as possible. If they do that, that will lead to a net saving of people's lives, okay? That's that's the job here, like let's save people's lives. And then the second round can come out and we can open up Coors Field again and people can go back for their second round now and then they're 96% inoculated. And I know you and I have talked about the Johnson & Johnson um, one that's supposed to just be a one-shot deal but right. you know that seems to be like languishing in the background and God knows what's holding that up and, and all these sorts of things. But the states have to be the blockers and tacklers of getting these things done. And I'm disappointed that more states didn't do a good job of laying the infrastructure out from early on. Even if when they didn't have the money, they could have been, you know, game theorying the, the, the execution. And there was ample time to do it. You know, I mean, we've, we've done great things. I mean, the entire state building was built in like a year, you know, we went from, we need to put a man on the moon to walking on the moon in like five years, you know, like this, we made a vaccine of a novel virus in less than a year and it could save all of our problems, but we didn't do the hard work. We didn't figure out how we're actually going to administer it. And I had conversations actually, one of my really good friends last summer, um, I was speaking with and, and I, I made the comment like, yeah, you know, just, we just got to get that vaccine. And then he's like, yes, but think about that. Then you have to get that in 300 million people's arms. You have to have 300 million syringes at the time. We didn't even think it was going to have to be 600 million. Right. You know, you're going to have to get all the vials. You're going to have to transport it. It's going to have to be cold. You're going to have to make the appointment. So you can't get appointment during flu season on a good year. How are we going to do this now? All these things were out there and the people that probably, you know, get their BAs in, in, uh, in public health or their MBAs or whatever, um, um, you know, clearly have been thinking about these in all of their like theoretical sort of discussions in the course of their education for the last hundred years. Why are we not better prepared? And it's disappointing. And and I hope that the takeaway, um, and Bill Gates uh, spoke about this last week on the best show on MSNBC, Ari Melber's The Beat, um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, he, he saw it coming. We needed to do something about it. We didn't. Uh, now we're playing catch up, but we can also continue to prepare for the future because these novel viruses are going to continue right. and we're going to have this kind of thing happen again. And, uh, you know, the world can't take another new shutdown in two or three years from something, you know, that we can't even think of right now. Well, and, and, and let me point this out too. I, let's not understate this. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine will be the game changer because of storage. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, ultra cold storage it. And it's a one shot. So that is, that is, that when are are we going to let, go ahead. Right. But are we going to um, have some sort of, you know, deliberative 
analytic data-driven organization decide where that goes in order to become the most um for it to become most effective or is it going to be like you know we're seeing headlines to, you know today like oh hospital donors are moving to the front of the line of this and that or you know there's all those politics like whether teachers should be getting uh involved in the first phase or not it's like you know what why don't we take the johnson and johnson and just give that to all the teachers in this country and open the schools back up and then We'll take the Moderna and the Pfizer and we'll figure out how to get that cold storage stuff to the remote areas. Or we'll set up systems where, you know, we have clinics and outlying places that can, you know, we have freezer trucks or whatever it takes. Like, you know, there needs to be a deliberative way of, of going through this. Because if you just dump another vaccine on the market and then you start having these people like on um, Bill Maher's show this week, there were these two epidemiologists, I believe they were, um, and they were, they were interesting characters, but they were like, you know, saying they preferred the AstraZeneca vaccine for themselves when they get the chance, because it's based upon like the traditional way of doing vaccines, not this new mRNA or whatever. And it's like, once you start flooding the market with different vaccines that are competing with another, you end up exacerbating the vaccine hesitancy, which is going to be a problem that needs to be addressed. And in our state, particularly, Morty, there's a lot of anti-vaccination um, push yeah. that is going to be an obstacle. You know, there was a bill before any of this came around in the in the state house, essentially saying that you know kids if they're going to go to public schools they have to have vaccinations and that's just how it is. And you know there was a huge pushback, demonstrations at the Capitol, all this from these people that you know are anti-vaxxers, and uh, that's going to definitely play a role in us getting to where we need to be here. And you know we're going to go down the road in the next handful of years, and there are going to be outbreaks in schools because of vaccine hesitancy and things like that right. but we don't need to be clouding the market along the way by you know giving letting people think that they have the choice of which one's going to be available or whether they know somebody who knows somebody and then maybe they can get a shot or or whatever there well, has me, to be a plan let me push back a little i i think i think it, it, it honestly nine times out of ten people are like just give me i think th i think 80 percent of the population is like yeah just give me the vaccine the problem has been right now is we're seeing two tracks going on. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll point out Colorado. Um, cases, deaths, and hospitalizations have fallen pretty dramatically since December. Um, and that is largely due to some restrictions. Um, but we can't say that the, vaccine, the vaccinated people haven't, haven't already benefited. And that is where we're getting into we there there may be psychic benefits to seeing the vaccine work and i and i think where we fail let's is call it psychological <laughs> we'll, we'll do that <laughs> we well we uh, but uh, they, they, there was this thing and within the last nba uh the last uh NBA lockout, they called it the psychic benefits of owning. Right. I mean, it's correct. You <laughs> use a correct term, yeah, but I don't I just, want to. There are people out there, Morty, as you know, that I just referenced. They believe in so. things that are a little outside the norms of correct. scientific provability. And You're so right. we need to uh, be clear <laughs> with our words. Psychological benefits. But I think uh, what's, what's happening is that in, as a country, we have done a terrible job of messaging. Uh, and part of vaccine distribution is messaging. And you have way too many Michael Osterholms who are always predicting doom. And then you don't have as many people out there who are saying, look, you, you, there's, there's tangible benefit to vaccines. There is actual, we're seeing it right now as older people are getting the real protected, right? And that's the real world consequence of demonizing people like Dr. Fauci, right. who continues to say the same thing over and over again. And uh, even today, uh, Mike Huck Huckabee, previously uh, referenced Mike Huckabee, was tweeting about how like, oh, Fauci originally said no masks. Now he's saying two masks. What next? Two, two watches to make sure you're on time? Two pillows? Like blah, blah, blah. Um, the, the, the fact is, is like Dr. Fauci was following the science all along and the concern with the masks was availability and not having them for the people that needed it on the front lines. And if you had everybody going out to just buy, you know, N95 masks and that sort of thing, it was going to put a strain on the system, which is again, a failure of leadership. And mm -hmm that needed to be avoided at that time. And then when it became clear that like, hey, just tell people to like, you know, put their favorite cloth covering over their face or, you know, wear their Grateful Dead uh, bandana over their mouth or whatever, you know, that it was like part of a rollout of a process of a society that was going to have to change the way in which it was interacting with itself. And 
the fact that along the way you find one mistake that a guy like Dr. Fauci made and continue to use it to pillory him for it and then dismiss all the things he said, which have been consistent all along about what we need to do in order to move forward, then you don't have the moral authority or the people with the credibility to stand in front of us and say, this is what I think, you know? And when you start out, you know, having like freaking Dr. Atlas or Dr. Rand Paul, um, right. get involved in like trying to tell us things that are completely, you know, not based in good public policy for public health, then you end up with a, a completely muddled situation, you know, right. and even Donald Trump himself would be like, Hey, it's not big of a deal. We're turning the corner or whatever. So we are going to, we are paying for that and yeah. we will continue to pay for that. And it's another example uh, to go back to our first story of how, you know, Joe Biden talked about how important it is to re-recognize truth, to call truth what it is, to call lies what they are, and let's all move on from that point. Because even if Donald Trump was a bumbling, terrible president, you know, all the things that we said that we don't like about him over all of the times that we talk, if he would have just devoted himself to putting the right people in charge, letting them tell us what the story would be and how we could get out of it, and then followed that plan, he would have been reelected. Right. So it's amazing how doing the right thing can end in the results you want regardless. But we are going to continue to pay a price for not having the proper people and the proper positions given the proper authority to speak to a nation and say, hey, this is the deal. There's always going to be the conspiracy theorists or the people that refuse to conform and whatever. But those people have ex that that has exploded, that group. Right. And Let it's me, dangerous. And that's but, what we're seeing now with the vaccine rollout. And let me let me throw this out here too. I, I, I as I was, I was kind of pointing out, what we've done is that we've muddled the messaging to distribution to, to well, I, well, the thing, the shit we're talking about right now, this like the 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 procedural machinations of getting this out, right? Which it's easy for people to tune out, right? It's easy for people to go, oh god, I don't care, just get me the shot, right? Well, the thing mm -hmm. that 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 is easy to translate to these people is how it's working. And I, I, I think we as a society have got so caught up the last year in negative, 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 everything fucking negative. Like the sky is falling, you know, remain vigilant or you're going to die. Stuff that well, like obviously clearly affected me when I went to fucking Walgreens, right? Uh, pardon my French people. Um, but I, the, the, the flip side of that is like, Colorado has been easing restrictions and cases are still dropping. And there's been no lag. It's been, it's been happening for two weeks, three weeks. And there hasn't been a, another lag because cases tend to tend to two weeks after exposure, they say, but it really is most likely two, three to five days after exposure, not two weeks. In a rare instance, you'll start showing symptoms after two weeks, but usually they say two to two to seven days. They give that window that you're you're going to start seeing it. So there would have been a bump up, like there was right after New Year's, when there was that little bump up and they start going down again. There hasn't been an emphasis on how the vaccine is protecting old, older people who've been getting the vaccine, uh, even after one dose. Um, and there's been no, no real push to emphasize this, even though we can see it happening. And it, and it, and it boggles my mind to, 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 to do this because, you know, the positivity of it is what's going to get people to get vaccinated. And I just, I just, I hate, I hate the negative messaging. Well, it's the same phenomenon that you just described is what made it take so long for us to take it seriously to begin with, right. which is that it wasn't visible, you know, like 9-11 is like the benchmark worst day of like our generation, whatever, because, it was, you know, it's a terrible day. It is one of the worst days ever, you know, right. um, but we watched it happen live and unfold when the hospitals were getting overwhelmed in El Paso, when the, the hospitals were at capacity and they were turning people away in Los Angeles, there weren't live shots of that happening and what that meant. Think about how many like actual media images you've seen from inside COVID wards and hospitals. Yeah. Very, very few and they're very niche. You'd have to be looking for them. But you know, every night they can get up and show this graphic that's like, oh, you know what? We're losing 4,000 people a day. We're up to 400,000 people dead. There's going to be another 150,000 people that die in the next six weeks. Those numbers don't resonate with people because they're, they're beyond the scope of anything that we deal with. It's, it's 
just like when you talk, yeah. like when you try to explain to somebody the difference between a million dollars and a billion dollars and how it's like a massive difference in the two, um, you know, to them, it's just like, well, a million is just a bunch of, then there's just a bunch more and there's a billion and that's a lot. It's more than I'll ever have of anything, mm-hmm. you know? And so it doesn't connect with them. And that's the same thing now that's happening that you're describing is it's like, yeah, we see Joe Biden getting the vaccine. We see uh, Mike Pence getting the vaccine. Uh, but we always assumed that they were just kind of being kept away from exposure anyway. We haven't seen, you know, the entire staff at a Kroger grocery store um, all receive their second dose and now go to work without worry. We haven't had conversations with enough people in our own personal lives about what this means for them. And so maybe in the next, you know, I know that they move teachers up to start being able to be um, vaccinated in February 8th uh, as like the 1B phase, I believe it's called in Colorado. Um, Maybe now when your kids' teachers are telling you like, hey, I've received the vaccine and this is letting us bring things back to normal and the kids are going back to school, but then then we're going to be able to build on that momentum and we'll have yeah. the, hopefully, the right messaging in place to back it up and be like, oh, look, you know, now it's just like the flu shot. I mean, can you believe how easy it is to get a flu shot? It's like, you can just go to a grocery store and say, I want a flu shot. And they say, great, here you go. We'll bill your insurance or it costs $10 or you're on Medicaid or whatever it is. And it's just taken care of. And when we get to that point with uh, the COVID vaccine, then I think that you're going to really start to see the payoff. And if indeed it is because some people are getting vaccines, what's bringing the numbers down, that's only going to become more and more and more dramatic. And we're going to see subsequent rewards. And so, you know, some of the rewards that I've heard it po- posited that what we should do is offer the $2,000 COVID stimulus payment to each American that receives a vaccine you know uh motivate them to do so now of course we can't because we're supply side is locked down right now and we need this money in the economy but what about you can go i mean the super bowl is uh next week they're going to have i think 22,000 vaccinated healthcare workers appearing there in person um what i mean i would get all kinds of experimental treatments to go to a super bowl um if uh my team happened to be to be in it um the uh radiation cures uh cures covid uh, we're gonna roll out hopefully (laughs) (laughs) i'll take hate you know i gotta get into a super bowl somehow uh it's not gonna be due to my uh my talent scouting of the, the rosters, that's for sure. Right, right. Um, so <laughs> certainly um, it, it gets to the point where it's like, you know, if concerts come out this summer and you have to prove that you've had a vaccine to buy a ticket, yeah. then there's a, a social form of compliance that's allowing that to happen. And you start seeing that with sporting events. You start seeing that maybe even with like things that are more localized, like movie theaters, like, oh yeah, you can buy a ticket to the, to go see the opening night of Black Widow, but you have to have, you know, this, this uh, widget on your phone or whatever that confirms that you've received the vaccination. And when, and, and so, you know, like I agree with you, there's been so much negative negativity that we're not spending a lot of time on hope, but these are the paths to hope. And these are the paths that are going to continue to roll out. And as we have more supply, more options, and then society starts to like regrow and people are going to leave their homes and you and I are going to have an opportunity to go down to a Blanchard family wines and a toast a glass together. Um, You know, those are the benchmarks that we'll have, that we will have been hoping for and they are achievable. I think that is a good place to end this. That's a, that's that's, once again, Pat has the last word. That's a, We've made this a thing. Um, all right, uh, folks. Uh, thank you all for joining us. And uh, Pat and I will be back hopefully next week. But, you know, you never know. And uh, let's, let's do it. Let's do Super it. Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. Yes, you're going to get really early and talk about the politics of Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, let's see if the Broncos have traded for, um, you know, Elvis Gerbach or something. So uh, <laughs> they had to pay $50 million in order to get it. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us, everyone. We'll see you all next week.